It is a joy um, to be here again and to be with you. Uh, you guys are a family. Um, we have walked a lot of journeys together. My wife Sally sends her love. Uh, she woke up this morning with some pain and, and uh, decided um, that she really couldn't come, but she does send her love. She misses being here with you. Also, what a joy um, to be here with Jordan and with Jenny and their family. Um, I was so sad to miss your installation. Uh, I am so thankful for you and for your leadership and that you're also here as well. I want to um, thank you for your prayers um, on this journey for me that I have been on since my accident. So I just uh, want to say thank you for that. Um, while many of us have already taken down decorations and ornaments, so this is still the Christmas season. In fact, this is the last day of Christmas. And this is the season where we look at the wonder of the Incarnation. Now we have, uh, to maybe to get an understanding of this, if you look in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you see the, the wonder that we were made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God means that we were meant to be His presence and His glory in creation. We were, as it says in Psalm 8, verse 5, crowned with glory and honor. We were the pinnacle of creation. And to see this, there was a stunning goodness in this. God's goodness is made clear in this. There is a stunning beauty that we were created in. We were the very good of creation. And the, the interesting thing is, is that it actually makes the temptation that the serpent brings in Genesis 3 even more devious. Because what is the temptation? You will be like God. It's a temptation to, to be independent of God, saying you don't need Him, you can be your own God. But, but the, the thing is, they were already as much like God as it was possible for a human to be. Made as His image, as His glory, His presence in creation. But the wonder of us being made in the image of God pales compared to the wonder of God being made in our image. That is what the incarnation is. God being made in our image. Now, that can sound strange or shocking or sacrilegious to say that God is made in our image, but this is the language that Paul uses in Philippians 2, verse 7. It says, rather, speaking about Jesus, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The same word of us being made in the likeness of God. Now, part of the problem why that sounds maybe odd to us is that we are always trying to make God into our image. Right? That we want to make Him like us so we can justify our choices and our decisions. We are not to make God in our image. But He has chosen to make Himself in our image and in our likeness. His image that could not be corrupted by sin, by a fallen world, because He cannot be corrupted. See, the image of God that we were created and we corrupted in our rebellion in Genesis 3. So they, we still carry the image of God, but it's the image of God that has been corrupted by sin. You see it in Genesis 5, where it talks about Adam was made in the image of God and Eve were made in the image of God. Seth was born in the image of Adam, which is the image of God that has been corrupted, has been tainted by sin. And so to fix the condition that we find ourselves in, God is made in our image. Paul picks this up in Romans 5. It talks about Jesus being in the image of Adam. He is in our image that He might take the punishment we deserve so that we can be restored. But even more than being restored, there's something great. There is an elevation that happens in this. That, that as Peter says, that we get to participate in the divine nature. 
God being made in our image that we can be restored and elevated, it actually shows that more is gained in the resurrection than was lost in the fall. So there's a radical reorientation that we need to see. It sounds really pious and holy to say, it's not about me, it's about God. Right? Have you, have you ever said that? Okay, it's not about us, it's about God. But the incarnation shows that it is profoundly about us. It is profoundly about us. We are why He came. If it weren't about us, Jesus would have never been made Word made flesh. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Fully human in the sense that that His humanity wasn't a costume that He put on so He could blend in while He was here and and then after He got the work done, He took it off. He was fully human and fully divine in His incarnation and He remains fully human and fully divine even now seated on the throne to open the way for us to be with Him. And as the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, that we might be like Him. Now, our lives are not to be about ourselves. But this isn't uh, some kind of ascetic self-denial. You know that we can sort of think that, that holiness is, if I'm miserable, then I'm living a life that's pleasing to God. Does anybody else ever wrestle with that? Like, if I'm doing things that are, I'm sacrificing, I'm, then, then somehow this makes me pleasing to God. Uh, when, when I say that, that our lives aren't to be about ourselves, it means that we are freed from the need to be engaged in self-protection, self-promotion, self-focus. Simply because God, who made all things and holds all things in His hands, is for us. In fact, He is so much for us that He came as one of us. He enters into our darkness. He enters into our brokenness. He enters into our alienation, our guilt, and our shame. He enters into our condemnation and our judgment. Jesus fully participates in our nature. This is part of of the wonder of this season that we have when we look at the incarnation. That He who knew no sin enters into our sin. That He exchanges His riches for our poverty. That He exchanges His perfection for our imperfection. That He exchanges His incorruptibility for our corruptibility so that He may destroy evil and recreate us as His people and as His glory. That's just the intro, but I'm not going to take a long time. Don't worry. (laughs) Now, the scriptures we have for today, there is so much in them. Uh, You can spend a series on each one of them. Uh, But what I'm going to do is use a a verse from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, to be the lens for us to help us understand uh, the fullness of the scriptures. But we've got to start at verse 7. So let me read 7 through 10. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ. Here's verse 10. To put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. So you have the the foundational piece that God lavishes us with His grace so that we can be forgiven, that we can be redeemed. And what it builds to is that He reveals that His will, His purpose, is to bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth through Jesus. This is this picture of restoration. This is, this is the Gospel. I mean, the Gospel has an individual element. Absolutely, what Jesus has done to rescue me. 
But it also has a corporate element. What He's doing to bring about the restoration of all things. This unity that Paul is speaking about, to bring to unity, is talking about this is God's plan to restore all creation to Himself. To restore harmony where that was lost by our rebellion. To set right the disunity that we created in our rebellion in Genesis 3. So one aspect of this, to bring to unity, to restore all things, we see in Jeremiah 31. And it's, it's this theme that the Lord will deliver His people. And the picture we find in Jeremiah 31 is this picture of deliverance after there's been a long captivity. And you find actually in verse 8 that there is a weakness that those who are being delivered experience. Verse 8, Jeremiah 31, it says, See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame. Expectant mothers and women in labor, a great throng will return. This rescue that we see in Jeremiah 31, it obviously does not depend on the people being rescued. This description is not a description of a group of warriors who overthrew their captives. This return was not done in their own strength. In fact, it is a miraculous return that God is picturing here. And again, this this harkens back to the heart of the Gospel that that the message of the Gospel is not try harder to be good. Because we can't be good enough. Uh, Try harder is never good news. The Gospel is a proclamation of what God has done for us to rescue us. See in verse 9, it says in Jeremiah 31, they will come with weeping, They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. So this rescue, as he's talking about it, says that it's marked in the beginning by weeping. It really is being marked by repentance, by crying out to God. But as you read through this, you see that this is not some kind of long and trudging journey. It actually moves from this weeping to being characterized by joy and comfort. And as you get towards the end of our reading today, even by dancing, there's this transformation that is happening. But, but even in this verse, it says that, that He will lead them by streams of water. If you are in a desert, this is something that is necessary. This is a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of His provision. It's actually a picture of rest. It says not only that, the ways will be level and smooth. Now this is not just speaking about it physically. It says that they will not stumble. It's not speaking about this just physically as a stumbling or falling. It's actually speaking about this in a spiritual sense. That we will not stumble. How many of you feel like you stumble? I stumble all the time. Uh, so we've got to understand that, that what he's talking about is he's not saying that you are not going to sin anymore. And that we, of course, we're still going to sin. That, that there is a sense of, of we are going to stumble. Those things happen. But what he's saying here is that we will not fail to reach where we are heading. That we will not falter on the journey. We will not fail to make the destination because making it is not dependent on our ability to do it. It's dependent on God and His grace. 
the same thing that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, saying, I am confident of this, that He who began a good work in you, He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He will carry us to that day. Ultimately, we will not stumble. So our rescue is not by our own strength. We are those who are weak and blind. And the journey that we take is actually also by His grace as well. That He is the one that ensures that we will not stumble. We see this in Jeremiah verse 11 of chapter 31. It says, For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. He doesn't say the Lord might. The Lord will deliver. And the word deliver is literally to to pay a ransom. It's paying a ransom for somebody who's been held captive or a slave or somebody in bondage. They could be set free. So we see that there is a price that is paid for our deliverance, for our rescue. But this is why Jesus came. This is why He took on human likeness. Why He was made in our image. So that He could stand in our place and take the punishment that we deserve. That He could pay the price for our sin that we cannot pay. And why He also as fully divine means that the amount that He pays, His ransom, His life was more than enough to rescue and redeem us. More than enough to set us free. More than enough to restore us as His people. So this picture of of to bring to unity all things, we have what we see in Jeremiah 31 is this picture of God restoring His people. What we find in Matthew 2 is that God's understanding of who His people are is, is a little bit different than what ours might be. It is completely unexpected that Magi would come to worship Jesus. Magi is where we get the term magician. This is a term for pagan sorcerers, and don't think Hogwarts when you think of that. These are people who represent the occult. I think this is why the hymn is um, talks about wise men, because wise men sound so much more acceptable. Right? They're wise, and somehow, even though they're far away, they were wise enough to figure out this Jesus is coming and we need to go. Uh, but, but actually, this is not what this word means at all. Now, magi, uh, magicians, uh, wizards, you can think, sorcerers, uh, diviners, they had some clout in the pagan world. Uh, they, they were revered, they were feared. They got an audience with King Herod fairly easily. But if you read about what the believer's response to them would be, in the Old Testament it was clear, you put them to death. Because they were evil. They were those who represented the demonic powers of sorcery and divination of the occult. But you even find in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 10, we have Paul speaking to a man who is described in this same word as a magi. He is a sorcerer. And what does Paul say? You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? So you're starting to get the picture. When you see these magi come, it's not just this cute sort of pageant thing that happens. There is something amazing that is taking place at this point. Because these magi are are men who have known darkness. They have been familiar with the occult. They represent in the biblical worldview all that is opposed to the Lord. These are the last people you would expect to show up. And it would be scandalous 
for the Jews, for the faithful Jews. So you have the Magi asking this amazing question in verse 2. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These men who have walked in darkness, that's what they've known. They want to worship Jesus. See, light has broken in. And they realize that there is something greater. A star from Jacob, a king is going to come who is from eternity. Now this was actually prophesied by one of the earliest magi that we see in Scripture. Balaam was a magi who was hired to curse the people of Israel during the Exodus. But the Lord took control of his mouth and he could only pronounce blessing. And you have this prophecy that he gives in Numbers 24. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. There was this, he saw this prophetic image of this, of this glorious king who was going to come. Now you have to look and say that the Magi, their understanding of who Jesus was, it had to be very limited. They did not have the Scriptures of the Old Testament to orient them about the, the Messiah. And what that tells us is there is no way that they actually could have figured this out. This did not come because they diligently studied the Scriptures and figured out, oh, this is, must be the Messiah who is coming. They didn't have the Scriptures. And this is something that God revealed to them as He was drawing them to Himself. And so we see that in verse 10. It says that when they arrived in Bethlehem, they were overjoyed. Literally, it means that they rejoiced with exceeding and great joy. This isn't a proper kind of English, oh, this is so nice, what a cute baby. I mean, this, is, this is an explosive, uncontainable joy that they have in there. And this is a rejoicing that cannot be contained. They have found what they were longing for. They had found what had stirred their hearts to set them on this long journey. And when they see Jesus, they bow down and they worship Him. Do you see how earth-shattering this is? Do you see how unexpected this is? Do you see how this is actually part of God's plan to bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth? God is not an ethnic God. He is not just the God of the Jews or for the Jews. But let's expand that to us. There is no tribe that has exclusive access or better access to God. No ethnic tribe, no political tribe, no denominational tribe, no cultural tribe that has exclusive access or better access. Our access is only through Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. So when we look at the story of the Magi, we see this is actually our story. This is the story of Jesus who entered into our darkness. He enters into our story to rescue us. We see in Psalm 84, actually expands even more this picture of, of to bring to unity all things. I want to focus specifically on verses 5 and 7. 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. 
So blessed are those whose hearts unset on pilgrimage. There's a sense of, of knowing that actually we're on a journey. We're heading towards this celebration. That where we are at this moment is not our home. However, just because we are on pilgrimage, just because we're on a journey, it doesn't mean that here is somehow unimportant. Listen again to verse 6. As they passed through the valley of Bacab. Bacab literally means weeping and desolation. They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. So as they pass through the valley of desolation, the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs and pools, which is a picture again as we saw in Jeremiah of refreshment and life and rest. So we have this picture that, that God's people are passing through the places of desolation and in that it is transforming them to places of refreshment and life. And what you see here is that this picture, uh, this, this, this purpose that God has for, to bring all things to unity in heaven and on earth through Christ, that it is actually something that He works through us as well. The world will try to tell you that you are irrelevant and insignificant. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always seeking to discourage us. And there's a lot to discourage us, right? They they have a lot to work with. uh, To discourage us because the darkness that we see in our own lives that doesn't seem to go away. Or maybe it's the, the darkness that seems to define so much of the world. And if we stand in our own strength and in our own competence, that discouragement will overwhelm us every time. See, our foundation is not our competence and our strength. That is something in these, these last months as I've been dealing with the effects of the accident that I am very much aware of because I have not been able to do much at all. It is amazing how quickly we can forget that we are powerless, that we are dependent, that actually we are not in control. I don't get to write my own story. See, our foundation is not our strength or our competence, but His strength. Our foundation is that Jesus is bringing unity to all things, even through us, and that is through His strength. Which means that we have to recognize that He will bring us into places of desolation. So that we can be part of his work of bringing restoration, refreshment, and life. Sometimes we work so hard to avoid the very places he wants to take us. We don't want to go to the places of weeping. We don't want to go to the places of desolation. And what happens then is that we miss the joy of being part of his work of the restoration of all things. Now, I want you to hear this as we, as we look at we are a part of the restoration of all things, that He does this work through us, that we don't approach this as some kind of heavy duty or obligation, as something we have to do. This is God's invitation to us. And the, the context of Psalm 84, in this context of worship, it gives us clear picture that, that restoration actually flows from who we are as a people who worship God. It's not that this restoration flows because of our strategic plans and our efforts. 
And maybe the image to think of is, is, you know, in a boat on a water, I love to kayak, and when you're kayaking and the lake is still, you leave a wake behind you, the, the ripples. And the picture here is that the wake of who we are as His people, as we pass through those places of desolation and weeping, what we leave behind by our presence is refreshment and life. See, this context of worship pulls us out of a utilitarian or duty-bound question of, okay, what am I supposed to do to manifest the kingdom of God? Into the grace of asking, Father, how will you manifest your kingdom? How are you going to manifest your goodness and your beauty and your love and your grace through who you have created me to be? Through who you have rescued me to be? See, if you have been rescued by Jesus, this is a restoration of the image of God. And that work of restoration is something that we walk into more fully. And we step into that more fully as we step more fully into who He has created us to be. So this work of restoration that we are called to, it's not primarily about what we do. It's about who we are as His people, and living into who He has made us to be. That place of of waking up and recognizing that we are His kingdom presence. And that we can bring restoration by stepping into who we are as the bride of Christ. And what we find from this Matthew reading is that we have such freedom in this. This is what the story of the Magi gives us. It's actually a tremendous freedom. Because He has seen our darkness. He has entered into our darkness. That there is no darkness so dark that He can't bring light and restoration. No darkness too dark in our lives and no darkness too dark in the world or in the lives of others around us. See, this is the glory of this day. That we see that, that His purpose is to bring the restoration of all things. That to bring to unity all things. And He does that in us and through us. And we have the freedom to step into that as His beloved children. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are the God who enters in. That when we in our sin and our rebellion turned from You, You did not turn from us but You pursued us even to the point of becoming one of us that we could be like You, that we could be restored as Your children. Father, I ask that You would by Your Spirit work this truth deeper into our hearts, that we would know the work of the Gospel, we would know this work of restoration that is actually for us and in us, and then it works through us where we are. Father, that You have invited us into what it means to be the Bride of Christ. To know that simply by being Your presence, Your glory, Your image, we bring restoration. That there is no darkness too dark in us or around us that You can't restore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.